Well, it's good to see you all this morning. It's good to be back up here. And uh, as Tim was saying, I've been up in Rogers for the past few months, Rogers, Arkansas. And uh, the members there uh, that meet at the church there send their greetings with me. And uh, they all hope that you're doing well. And uh, they're uh, grace- gracefully sending me here so that uh, I can... Uh, do some other things, but I've been given the opportunity by the elders to preach here this morning, and so I'm grateful for that opportunity. I'm grateful to be able to speak to you all and be able to learn more about God's Word with you. Now this morning, I want to talk about something that we don't really talk about super often. This morning, I want to talk about curses. When we talk about this word, when we talk about this word curses, when I use that word, different people out here in the pews probably have different ideas about what that word means, about what comes with that word. Some people might think I'm talking about foul language. Some people might think about cursing, about you know using expletives as curses. Others might think I'm talking about curses you might see in scary movies, in The Conjuring, or other movies like that that are filled with witches, demons, and devils, things that uh, are curses with incantations and rituals. Others still might think of Harry Potter. I don't watch it all that much, but I know that uh, one of the most common uh, spells that they use in that movie is called the killing curse. So maybe you think about that whenever you hear the word curse. The word curse is used often, and it's used in many different ways in our culture. But today... We're going to look at curses for what they really are. We're going to look at curses in the way that they are presented in the Bible. We're going to look through these societal ideals, these things that we think about curses, these things that have been generated by pop culture or word of mouth, and we're going to endeavor to understand what curses really are in the biblical context. Whenever we start to do this, whenever we start to look at something in the biblical context, the first thing that we need to understand, the first thing that we need to set up if we're going to understand curses, is we need to understand that curses are, in fact, real. They're not just hoodoo. They're not just supernatural mumbo-jumbo. Curses are brought up many times in the Bible, many times. And there are many times when we get a look at what they are and what they're capable of doing. We need to recognize and we need to realize, if we're going to study these curses, that biblical curses are real things. And that studying them and understanding them is just as important as the study of anything else contained within the scriptures. And with this recognition of the reality of curses, we have to understand that not only are curses real and that they do exist, but that they also do and in fact did fall on people. We see in Scripture that curses fell on people often, and many times these curses, though not always, worked. In essence, these curses that we're going to be looking at today can be summarized in a few words. Death and decay. We see that when these curses, these curses that are real, these curses that fall on real people are laid on people, it's meant to bring the exact opposite of blessings. Blessings are established in Genesis chapter 1. We see that in the first chapter of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, if you want to turn there, starting in verse 22. Genesis 1 and verse 22. And we're going to go down in a few seconds into verse 28 as well. We see that blessings in these passages are meant to bring life. They're meant to bring light. 
It says in this passage, when God is in the midst of his creation, he says, God blessed them in verse 22 and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. Speaking to the animals of his creation. And he says, speaking to the man in verse 28, he says, God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. In these verses, we see that the essence of what a blessing is, is established. We see what blessings are designed to do, to bring fertility, to bring life, to bring fruitfulness. However, in Genesis chapter 3, in verse 17 through 19, if you want to turn there, we see that in contrary fashion, curses were meant to bring nothing but death and destruction. Speaking in this passage, after Adam and Eve had taken of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil, he says, To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And in this passage, it's very clear we see the consequence of the sin of Adam and Eve, and this consequence being the curse that God laid on humankind, the curse of death. God curses Adam and Eve, and by extension, their descendants, us, to work for our food, to toil all of our days until what? Until we ultimately die until we return to dust. This first curse that we're presented with in the Bible sets up the idea of curses for the entirety of Scripture. It serves as a baseline for what a curse is and what it does. We see three things. We see that man sins, God curses man, and man withers and dies. This is the baseline that is set in Genesis chapter 3. And we see another example of this just a chapter later in Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4 and verses 11 through 12. This is when God is speaking to Cain shortly after Cain has murdered his brother. He says, Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you, and you will be a restless wanderer on the earth. In this passage, shortly after Cain murders his brother Abel, God pronounces this curse on him. He curses him to wander the earth. And this is a curse that plays out immediately in the case of Cain. We see in the next few verses that he's forced to wander outside of his initial home with his family. And this plays out as well over time as Cain's descendants, the Canaanites, are eventually driven from their lands and are forced to become wanderers and foreigners throughout the ancient Near East. This calamity, this death, and this decay that follow Cain and his descendants very clearly comes from this curse that was brought about by his murder of his brother. Again, demonstrating the power and the purpose of such curses. And we see this same principle, this same baseline that was set up in Genesis chapter 3. Man sins, God curses man, man withers and dies. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, 
starting in verse 15, if you want to turn there, uh, and starting in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 28, we see yet another example of curses in the Old Testament. And in this passage, we get a detailed description of the consequences of this curse. This is that famous scene that we see takes place on Mount Ebal, where the blessings and the curses that come with the Israelites' covenant with God are laid out. We see starting in verse 15, it says, However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not follow all of his commands and decrees that I'm giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. It starts with these curses in verse 16. It says, You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed, and the crops of your land and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. You'll be cursed when you come in. You'll be cursed when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and rebuke in everything you put your hand to until you are destroyed and come to sudden ruin because of the evil you have done in forsaking him. The Lord will plague you with diseases until he has destroyed you from the land you are entering to possess. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease, with fever and inflammation, with scorching heat and drought, with blight and mildew, which will plague you until you perish. The sky over your head will be bronze, the ground beneath you iron. The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. It will come down from the skies until you're destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You'll come at them from one direction, but flee from them in seven. And you'll become a thing of horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your carcasses will be food for all the birds and wild animals, and there will be no one to frighten them away. We see this list of curses goes on and on and on until the end of the chapter. And we see that there's an express reason given for why these curses might come upon the Israelites. It's noted in verse 15, and then again in verse 45. In verse 45, it says, All these curses will come on you. They will pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed, because you did not obey the Lord your God and observe the commands and decrees that he gave you. This passage makes it evident that the people of Israel, if they were to go against God, to rebel against him, to break their covenant with him, it would not be that they were cursed for no reason. It details exactly what would cause these curses to take effect. And it warns the Israelites not to stray from God, not to break this covenant, not to go against what he says, or else these curses will befall them. And we know, obviously, in hindsight, that Israel did not heed these warnings. We know that they strayed from God, that they did not keep his commandments. And we know from how they were judged and punished that these curses did, in fact, take root. They did, in fact, come to pass. Famine, drought, pestilence, destruction, captivity, all of these things were brought on Israel to fulfill the promises made in this passage, all as a result of the curse that befell Israel for their sin. And so we see this pattern set up early on in Genesis still stands here. Man sins, God curses man, man withers and dies. We even see an example in the New Testament, in Mark 11 and 21, in which Jesus curses a fig tree for not doing its job, for not bearing fruit, and causes it to wither and die. And in this we see a slightly different scenario, but one that brings about the same result to the subject of the curse withering death. And the one thing that ties all of these passages together, that ties curses, no matter what kind, together, is their source. 
That source is God. We typically get the notion that curses are evil things in the modern world. That they come from cults or witches, demons, whatever they are. We see that in the movies. We see that on TV. That's, that's, that's how we make our perception. It's how we form our opinion on them. And most of that perception, like we talked about, comes from either word of mouth or that popular media. But what Scripture says about curses is that they come from God. And now some of you might be asking a question in your head already, but what about Balaam? Didn't he curse people? Wasn't he supposed to curse the Israelites? If, if that's coming from Balaam, if that's coming from man, how are curses coming from God? Balaam was a man that was capable of bringing curses on people. And that's why in Numbers, he was called to do such a thing. It says in Numbers 22 and verse 6 that whoever Balaam blesses is blessed, and whoever he curses is cursed. And so if this is true, if whoever Balaam curses is cursed, how on earth do curses come from God and God alone? It may seem on the surface as though Balaam is the one doing this blessing, doing this cursing. But if we look a little further into this story, then we can find some information that I think helps us better understand and better answer this question, this problem that might come up. We see later on in chapter 22 of Numbers, in chapter 22 and verse 18, Balak presses Balaam, asking him to come and curse the Israelites for him. And Balaam gives kind of a curious answer to the king. He says in verse 18 of chapter 22, he says, But Balaam answered them, Even if Balak gave me all the silver and gold in his palace, I could not do anything, great or small, to go beyond the command of my Lord. This passage seems to denote that cursing the Israelites was something that the Lord had not commanded Balaam to do. Seeming to imply that though Balaam may be the one pronouncing these curses, that it is in fact God who commands that these curses be pronounced in the first place. This is further emphasized in just one chapter over, in chapter 23, in verses 11 through 12. We see in these verses that Balak commands Balaam to curse the Israelite people, but rather than doing this, Balaam instead blesses the people of Israel. And Balak, in his rage, he says, What have you done to me? I brought you to curse my enemies, but you've done nothing but bless them. In verse 12, he says, he answered, but I must not, Balaam answers, must I not speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? Balaam demonstrates clearly in his response to Balak that God is the one from whom all blessings and all curses flow. God is the source of Balaam's power to bless, and in the same way, God is the source of Balaam's power to curse. It wasn't through any other means that Balaam was able to do the things that he could do. It wasn't through witchcraft or sorcery that Balaam was able to do these things. From what he says, it comes from God. And this should cause us to come to a realization. That just as God may bless his people, he may also curse them. Looking at all of these passages together, we can come to the understanding that curses aren't just some hoodoo magic that people can place on others for petty reasons. But rather, curses are set upon people for righteous reasons. Seemingly as punishment for sin from everything that we see in these passages. And so, I would propose to us that curses are terrifying, they're powerful, they are deadly. But more importantly, they are righteous. 
And they are a tool wielded by the Almighty to mete out his justice. So now, we know that curses fall. We know that they fall on real people. We know that they're a righteous tool used by God. But what does that matter to us? That was all the Old Testament, right? All these curses were in the Old Testament except for that one with the fig tree. Those people who were cursed lived under the old law. They lived in that time of supernatural power. That time is faded, right? Why don't you turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. We see at the very start of this letter to the church in Galatia, we see that the concept of curses is, de- is dealt with. Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 6, we see that Paul is speaking to them and he says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, as I've already said, Paul says, now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what is accepted, let them be under God's curse. Verse 10 is important. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, then I would not be a servant of Christ. So we see in this passage the first real bit of meat in the book of Galatians outside of the greetings that Paul gives, and that Paul gives a strong warning to the people of Galatia. He warns them of false teachers, of pursuing a false and warped gospel. And through application, it can be understood that Paul is warning the people of Galatia not to teach or preach this false doctrine to refrain from preaching anything that goes against the gospel of Christ. Paul warns these Galatians that the ones who engage in such actions, who are trying to win the approval of human beings, as he says in verse 10, are going to be cursed by God. And so now that we know what curses are, now that we know what power they have, we understand that they are meant to be taken very, very seriously. These are curses that bring about death and decay. And this verse should terrify us. It should make us realize just how powerful God is and just how serious he is about his gospel and about the truth of his gospel. It should make us realize that for those who teach false doctrine, who teach something other than God's word, there's a curse waiting. There is death waiting. There is decay waiting. And this isn't just a physical death either. This is not just physical decay and destruction. If you want to turn into, uh, into 2 Peter with me, 2 Peter chapter 2, we see exactly what kind of destruction is waiting for those who teach false doctrine. There's a spiritual condemnation for these people. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. 2 Peter chapter 2, 1 through 3, it says, But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you. And they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. And in their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. 
Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. Teaching false doctrine, and as Paul puts it, teaching things that are not consistent with Scripture for the sake of winning man's approval is a grave sin that is promised to bring a curse down with it. And this may sound like a non-issue for us. We're not false teachers. We don't teach false doctrine. But Paul warns the Galatians, good, moral Christian people, of it for a good reason. He warns them not to teach a doctrine that is going to be people-pleasing, not to teach a gospel that conforms to the world for a reason. It's easy to change the gospel to fit our ideals. We see it happening in churches all around us. They're beginning to change the gospel to fit their own beliefs, to please the world. There are churches now that are saying, you can get a divorce for any reason. There are churches saying that homosexuality is okay. It's okay to live in that sin. There are churches that are preaching that there's hundreds of roads to heaven, that denominationalism is just okay. It's a-okay. It's fine with God. There are more liberal churches now that have decided that they're going to justify women elders, women preachers. There are those preaching out there, sound churches even, with people in them teaching AD 70 doctrine, that Christ has already returned, that the judgment day has already occurred. This false doctrine that Paul talks about is all around us. It's everywhere. And it's easy. It's oh so easy to fall victim to this false doctrine whether that be listening to it, whether that be being a victim of it, or whether that be falling into the trap of teaching false doctrine so that we can fit in more with the world, so that we can be more like the world, so that we can appeal to the world more, as Paul says, to appease the men of the world rather than God. A lot of people decide that they're going to preach the Bible that they wish they had instead of the Bible that they do have. Romans 2 tells us what happens to those who do these things, if you need even more proof. Romans chapter 2 and verse 8 tells us what happens to those who preach their gospel rather than the gospel of Christ. It says, but those who are self-seeking and those who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Those who reject the truth, there will be wrath and anger for them. This warning is given for a reason. So that God's people may abstain from teaching falsehood, so that we may abstain from following falsehood, so that we may avoid the curse of God that would be laid on us if we were to teach anything, if we were to engage in any teaching that is not in line with his word. We could become false teachers if we don't watch our step. Even if we change something small, something minute about God's word to fit our ideals, to fit what we want, We're a false teacher. And this curse, this curse is waiting for us if we do that. We can fall victim to this curse that Paul spells out if we don't watch our feet, if we don't keep our feet on the right path. But how do we do that? In a world that's happy to throw off the truth and to embrace falsehood, how do we keep ourselves on the right path? How do we avoid this curse? This body of believers here is strong in teaching the truth. And I exhort you for that. I am grateful for that. But how do we keep on that path? How do we stay on that path? The first thing that we have to do in order to stay on this path, to avoid this curse 
this death and decay. The first thing that we have to do is to stay in the word constantly, consistently, and to consistently seek the truth. If we're studying the scriptures daily, if we're testing them with the things that we hear and we see, if we're testing them with what people say, what they preach, with what we believe, then we are going to be on the right track. We can have no way of knowing truth. We can have no way of discerning God's word if we don't have any idea what God's word says. A lack of knowledge in all candor is likely the reason that we have so much false doctrine. It's likely the reason that so many have taught false doctrine because they lack knowledge of the scripture and they lack an understanding and a dedication to the truth. Joshua 1 tells us exactly how we should be interacting with our Bibles. You don't have to turn here, but Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8 tells us how we should interact with the truth of God's word. It says, keep this book of law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. And then you will be prosperous and successful. Meditate on God's law day and night. Keep it on your lips. Meditate on it. And in our case... We need to meditate on God's word, not his law, but God's word. And we will be prosperous and successful. We will be blessed and not cursed. That's the first step to making sure that we stay in God's truth, that we stay away from this curse, is to keep in the word, to keep focused on the truth. Another thing that we have to do in order to avoid God's curse is to preach and teach the truth and only the truth. If by meditating on God's word, if by staying in his scripture continually, we may learn the truth, then we must not teach or preach anything that deviates from it. Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 18, Matthew 28 and verse 18, it says, Then Jesus came to them and he says, uh, speaking of his apostles, it says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always until the very end of the age. In this passage, Jesus commands his disciples to teach the people around them to obey everything that he had commanded. And notice he didn't just say that they should teach everything that they thought that they should teach, everything that they thought was a good idea. He didn't just say, go teach your conscience. Jesus commanded them to teach what he had said, what he had commanded, everything that he had commanded, not what any man had said. This is the second step that we have to take if we're going to avoid God's curse. We have to preach and we have to teach the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And finally, if we're to avoid the curses of God, then one last thing that we have to do is live the truth. We can't simply teach and preach the truth if we're to avoid God's curses. We can't teach Christ and his gospel through words alone. That's not how it works. We don't just teach and preach God's word through our words. We teach and preach God's gospel through our actions as well. If we are living in a life, if we are 
committing sins, if we are taking actions that are not in line with God's truth, how can we teach God's truth? Paul says, in, uh, says to Timothy in, Timothy, uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, he says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. If we believe in the truth of the gospel, that we have to present ourselves, as Paul admonished Timothy to, as ones who are approved by God, as workers who don't need to be ashamed, as people who follow God's commands and who are living their lives in line with the truth of the gospel. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-6 through 6 says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. If we know the truth and we claim to preach it, but we don't really live it, then what are we? We are no better than false teachers. We are no better than false prophets. This verse seems to state that we are no different than these false teachers, that we're no better than them. Because if we claim to be one who has fellowship with God, when in fact our fellowship is with darkness, then we are a liar. We are a false teacher. And so this verse should encourage us to be not only those who read the truth, who understand the truth, and who teach the truth, but also those who act on the truth who live the truth, so that we may live in truth and walk in fellowship with our Lord. Curses are things that lead to death and to decay. They are real. They fall on real people. They fall on those who sin. Man sins. God curses man. Man withers and decays. Blessings bring light and life. They bring prosperity. They bring fruitfulness. God grants access to both. He gives us the option to choose. It's up to us to decide whether we are going to pursue God's blessings or God's curses. We see that through Scripture that Christ is truth. His word is truth. It's through him that we gain access to our Father, to our salvation, to God's blessings. It's through him and him alone that we gain eternal life and eternal blessings. There's no other way. Christ says as much in John 14, verse 8. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those who come through Christ, who seek the truth, are the ones who will be blessed. And anyone else, anyone who teaches their own gospel, who tries to do things their way, who tries to appeal to the world, who tries to preach a gospel that is against what we see in God's holy scripture, let them be accursed. Thank you for your attention this morning. We'll now turn it over to... Brother Watkins for a song. Keep in mind these curses and these blessings as you go throughout your week.